Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 25th, 2022. I'm John Popwards, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you yet again to consider joining us on April 6th in South Florida in Palm Beach for a live taping of this very podcast. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast for more details. And with me that day and with me today, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so last night I uh, attended a Billy Joel Billy Joel concert at Madison Square Garden in New York. It's the first mass event. I, actually, it's not. I, I went to it because I'm an old man and have old man taste. I went to a Genesis concert about six weeks ago, but uh, this was the first time that um, you didn't have to wear a mask. Um, you know, 20,000 people unmasked in Madison Square Garden. Uh, and the sense of sort of liberation, uh, this is always true of these Billy Joel concerts. Billy Joel t- occupies a special place in the hearts of uh, New Yorkers in the New York area. Uh, he is, you know, he is sort of like the golden boy of Long Island and, uh, and you know, has written many songs highlighting many landmarks in and around New York City. Um so it's a special kind of um, energy in the room. But um, I was struck uh, yet again by the um, the celerity with which the COVID regime has been quashed and suspended with the with the exception of uh, mass transit in New York, for example, or, you know, going on airplanes. Um, uh, basically, it's over. And uh, but it's not over and it's not politically over. And that's what I wanted to start with here today. Uh, Politico uh, reports on a poll that it conducted uh, with Harvard um, on parents and masking. And the numbers are pretty startling, I have to say, Um, because they 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 raise the question of what will happen should there be another surge and the public health officials instantly default to the idea that it's time to mask up um parents 478 parents whose children attend school in person poll conducted at the beginning of march 40 percent for more than four in 10, excuse me, 46% said mask wearing hurt their child's social learning and interactions. And 39% told posters it affected their child's mental and emotional health. 11% said it helped. Nearly half said they made no difference either way. So that's 46 to 11. Um, And that 46, of those 46, you know, uh, 85% think that their children were were harmed, not just in in educational terms, but in emotional terms. Um, We're moving on from COVID. Uh, This is the overhang of 2022. We keep talking about new things because it's more interesting to talk about new things, right? And we talk about inflation, which is not a new thing, but ongoing thing. It's not going to go away as eating away people's, you know, um, uh, paychecks. Uh, but, you know, there are, are countervailing things there. You know, we have the we have the uh, fewest number of people applying for, is it a fewest number of people applying for unemployment or the fewest number of people lo- 
looking for jobs in 52 years, uh, rising incomes, which of course are being eaten away by inflation, but at least the incomes are rising so that there is something to meet the inflation where it where it's happening. Although of course rising incomes are also a, f- a factor in inflation, but nonetheless, there's all this. There's all this. The economic the economic news is not is much better for get, being bad than you would think, right? Stock market is not taking a a, a pounding because of uh, because of uh, Ukraine, and we've moved on to talk about Ukraine and all of that. But you have a very substantial minority of American voters who believe that the COVID regime hurt their children and they're all going to vote. And if they live in the suburbs, November is going to be, a, you know, uh, the calamity of November. I, I don't think Democrats or even Republicans have quite precisely reckoned with if this is the way people are feeling in March. And I see no reason why they'll feel better about it. COVID is, is totally point. off the radar, though, right now, right? Right, I mean, but it doesn't have to be terms. on the radar. That's my it's point. It's like the damage is done. Right. There was a Pew right. Research Center poll <clears throat> came out yesterday, March 7th through 13th, um, testing voters' priorities. And COVID, the coronavirus outbreak, came in dead last behind the economy, voting issues, healthcare, education, energy policy, everything. Size and scope of federal government, climate change, everything. So at the very bottom, because 19 percent of Republicans care at this point, because they live in places where the covid outbreak hasn't been a thing in a year and a half. Among Democrats, however, it's 46 percent. So it's a pretty serious issue. Well, and the Uh, the digression briefly, though, by the way, is the second most important issue to voters is voting policies under the economy, which is really disturbing because both sides of that issue perceive themselves to be in a a war to, to preserve their enfranchisement from a conspiracy. Right. That's the second most important thing. To voting for for people today to go out and vote for a conspiracy theory. Can that, that is can that, well? Can I will that really I, be true. Can it's that, the second most important yes. issue. Fifty eight percent of Republicans and sixty six percent of Democrats, for a total of sixty one percent of the voters, think this is the, the the most important issue. It's a stand in for their their feelings about the health of the dem, of democracy. It's it's the constant drumbeat of democracy is is in peril that we've heard for for two years now. And, and we heard and throughout it's all the vaporware and it's insane. And the whole country has been captured by it. Yes. Can I add one other thing, which is that we say right now it's in the background. But uh, what happens? I think that the real test will be if in the fall the flu season begins COVID perhaps returns in a new form as a variant. We already have a new variant now, though thankfully it's mild. And the so-called public health experts who have lost all faith, the faith of the American people start telling us and the Biden administration starts telling us, you got to mask up again. Everybody put their mask back on. I think that's when we'll see a real pushback. And I doubt seriously that Democrats are, are dumb enough to try to get masks back on people right before an election. They're not going to do it. And they're going to have to come up with some convoluted rationale to explain to their own voters, because they're trying to get their own voters to turn out here. Um, Republicans aren't going to have a problem with this because, as Noah said, they haven't been living in fear in this way with masks on forever. My kids were some of the last in the world to still have to wear masks in school. <laughs> and every day they, they talk about their gratitude for not having to wear one. And uh, they don't even mind having to continue to wear one on the bus every day because they're like, whatever, at least I don't have to wear it all day. But they will try to bring those back, particularly in blue state areas. And that's going to be a challenge. You really well, can't that's... see them like 
that becoming the norm again in you know dark blue cities new york city los angeles uh, Washington. i don't I know the parents not in schools the parents are actually i've been surprised by how many extremely liberal people on every other political issue agree with that poll because what they did they lived for two years watching their kids chew through their masks sneeze into them wear them improperly rip them on and off they either still got COVID or not and i think the real the real test now for most of those parents, the blue state ones are, we're responsible. We all got vaccinated. We all did everything you wanted us to do, but enough already. The mask didn't seem to make a huge dent in the way that these waves of COVID rose and fell. No, look, the, the politics are, are unmistakable. Sean Patrick Maloney, a Democrat of New York in the House, who chairs the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, said earlier this week, I'm completely over mask mandates. I don't think they make any sense anymore. I'm for whatever gets rid of mask mandates as quickly as possible. That is the guy whose job it is to to save the House from a calamitous tsunami uh, for the Democrats. I, I mean, this is this is a pretty staggering statement. And my point is, he's right to be worried. He is right to try to align himself politically with an anti-mask philosophy. But uh, the damage has already been done. Um, Republicans are the anti-masking party and Democrats are the masking party. And anything that reminds people that Democrats are the masking party is going to be really, really bad for them. And the school closure party. They are also but, the party. Of it's, school well, it's all right. Masking is now masking is now this sort of. I don't know what you would call it. I mean, right. you know, in poetic terms, you would call it a synecdoche. It is the th- it is the it is the one part of the COVID response that stands in for the whole. Um, so ma- masking is every means. It used to be lockdown, where people would say lockdown right. meant you yeah. know, just any any mitigation measure, and people would be yeah. like, "Well, we haven't had lockdown in forever." Yeah, it's like and yeah, people kind of missing the shorthand. People and outlets that um, had been banging the drum for. We don't know if kids are kids are at risk just as much as adults. Or we don't know yet. We don't know the effect of COVID on kids. Uh, we don't know how they carry it. We don't know how what how severely they get it. Um, are now suddenly allowed or find themselves speaking the truth, the truth that we've been saying for for ages on this podcast over and over again about the extraordinarily low risks of severe COVID on average for children. There was a piece at uh, CNBC. I think it was yesterday, headlined, Why Don't Kids Get COVID Badly? Okay, nice revelation on their part. Um, And I just want to read a bit because it it goes to the point that we've been making, John in particular, over and over again. It talks about a study in England. And the study found that out of the 3,105 children and young people who died from all causes during the first pandemic year in England, 25 had died of COVID corresponding to an overall mortality rate of two deaths per million children in England. Now, hang on. Of the 25 children that sadly died of COVID, 19 had chronic underlying health conditions, including some children with multiple comorbidities and life-limiting conditions. While the other six that died appeared to have no underlying health conditions, researchers cautioned there may have been an unidentified comorbidity or undiagnosed genetic predisposition to severe disease with COVID infection. We are talking infinite, infinite. I lost the word. No, I mean, that is infinitesimal, Thank but, you. It, but, but it is six. not, I mean, six, six, six in a country of, I believe 80, 85 million people, I think live in, in Great Britain. 
It's unmeasurable. Right. So this is, uh, we were watching this as it was happening in real time. That's what was so fascinating to me. Look, I have three kids under the age of 18. Christine has two kids under the age of 18. Noah has two kids under the age of eight. You think we you think we're not scared for our kids' health? You think we're not you think we're not careful about our kids' health? I mean, watching the numbers from really from May or June of 2020 after the outbreak revealed that a mysterious miracle was going on in the midst of all the horror which is that unlike any pandemic known in world history, this was not going at children first. You just touched on a really interesting thought that I don't think anybody's really explored, which is that for the better part of two years, although not in the last six months really, but for the better part of two years, an unspoken argument was made that parents who were anything less than freaked out about the prospect of COVID infection in their children were bad parents. And that message was retailed to the whole country and anybody who didn't observe maximum mitigation measures on their on their children was subject to a shame campaign to an intimidation campaign uh and the underlying assumption was well you just don't care about your children's health which is pretty darn offensive uh and frankly unreal unreasonable because we did actually survey the data and and experience experience covid infection in young children Everybody around me got it, including our kids in December in the Omicron wave. And so yeah, I had firsthand experience with what it was. And it was a very mild cold for children. Well, that was so. But if we go back to 2020, so it, no one knew there were there were no there were no there were no vaccines there. Blah, blah, blah. Nothing. Right. And now now we find ourselves in the situation in which we learn that the of that the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines um, for kids are not particularly effectual. Now, that doesn't mean they're harmful. It means they're not particularly effectual. But guess what? They don't need to be effectual because kids don't get COVID as a general rule. Or if they get it, it doesn't affect them very much unless they have these comorbidities. And that's where you have this weird elision, the sliding scale or grading on a negative curve in which the idea is we needed these mitigation measures because this was a pandemic. A pandemic, by definition, threatens everyone, threatens everyone. And therefore, I have to do what I have to do, not only to protect myself and my family, but to protect you from me because of the nature of the transmission and not knowing when you have it and all of that. And you you do it for me. I'm doing it for you. And that's the only way to keep a calamity from happening. But then other things start popping up because it's not just that you have to do it for your for everybody else. What about the immunocompromised? You have to do it for them. The immunocompromised, a term that was not in general use until 2020. It's not a word. It's, you know, it's like a word that uh, suddenly became the word of the year, you know, um, a word that was not in use because the number of actual people who are immunocompromised is very small. But yes, okay, fine. So we do this. It's a great thing because we're also doing it and helping the immunocompromised. And what about the elderly? Nobody wants to do things that are going to harm, you know, grandparents and stuff like that. 
But suddenly it wasn't about mitigating a pandemic. It was about helping and protecting isolated populations within, or, you know, demographics or isolated population within the bot, you know, the, the, the immense, you know, uh, social body politic. That's not what mass mitigation measures are for. They are not under those circumstances when a person is at risk from that in a way that uh, they other people are not at risk. They're the ones who have to mitigate by definition. Um, because the inconvenience or the hardship on others is too great for the risks that they themselves are, are facing. And in the end, children were the ultimate victims of this because they weren't sick. They weren't getting sick and they weren't transmitting the illness to others because they weren't getting sick. It's not like they were mysteriously sick and they didn't know it. If that were the case, then yeah, it's like the flu for them. And okay, so maybe they shouldn't go see their grandparents or something like that. All of this came crashing in. It's funny because the 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 revival of mitigation measures when 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 the panic about Omicron started, you know, Thanksgiving weekend, turned out to have been the ultimate nail in the coffin of the COVID regime because it was so incredibly. Um, contagious and because people who were vaccinated got it and because nobody got sick from it and when i say nobody i know one in 20 people got sick from it one in 30 people one in 50 people got got pretty sick from it also those were people who were vaccinated and many of them were masking all the time too like in my household everybody was masking and you know at school everywhere we went and two of us got it and the third didn't it was weird like something but yeah, it was again in my house four of us yeah. got it and one of us didn't and then we have Abe's this this point that Abe made in the summer of 2020 that continues to haunt me because you're now seeing it everywhere, which is maybe the whole point about this is that it's a it's a fascinatingly aggressive predator, COVID, because it aims at the already sick and it goes after them. And under those conditions, it may well be that the only mitigation measure was vaccination, but it may not even be that good a mitigation measure because now there are outbreaks in New Zealand, which sealed itself off after two years. And then, or, or um, you know, some of these, other, South Korea, places like that. And Abe said, when, you know, New York's surge stopped and then surges happened elsewhere and all that, it looks like everybody is going to have to dance with the devil here no matter what you do because it's opportunistic and aggressive and it has this very specific strategy of going at the elite people who are the least capable of fighting it off. And we're, we're seeing that now New Zealand gave up its isolation strategy last week, New Zealand, which was like a, which was like nearly a fascist state celebrated by liberals across the world for its wonderful mitigation strategies where, you know, Jacinda Ardern was basically making, I don't she know. She was just, a prison warden. Let's yeah. be serious. She was, she yeah. turned her country into a prison briefly. Look, and yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, we see there's the times, New York times has been running uh, like a series on 
what we could have done better in COVID, why, why, why lockdowns worked where they worked, why, why places, why some places were able to, to fend off big surges at certain points, blah, blah, blah. We also see now studies, study after study, questioning the efficacy of lockdowns at all. Um, we will never, ever know the extent to which any of this helped anyone. I mean, this is another reason why local COVID boosterism is was always such garbage. You know, when you think of like Cuomo talking about how New York did a great job and everyone did it because every, because the, the, you know, as Cuomo would always say, uh, we were the, we had the worst case, we had the worst case count in the country. And then we, then we went to the best. That's the way it happens. That's, that's what happens when a surge hits you and then dies down everywhere. And, and, and it's we'll literally just, the nature, it's the literally yeah. the nature of the pattern of, 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 of any such thing, because not everybody is going to get it. I mean, it's not the plague, you know, I mean, that that's we, we sort of got into this mindset that it was the bubonic plague or it was the plague of the 13th, 14th century. You know, that if you just touched somebody who had it, you would get it and then you would die. And in fact, as I said, it, it turns out, and there are reasons we didn't really know. And we did, but once the vaccines were present, and that was 16 months ago, 15 months ago, all the reasons to mitigate the way that we were mitigating started flying out the window. And the data about children were unmistakable and they were mistaken. And they were mistaken, and as we know, and this is why Democrats are in such trouble, and why this is a thing that is going to hang over them like the cloud over the character in Little Abner, uh, who just rains on him and, and nobody else, um, because they celebrated themselves for it. And uh, people, this is not something that people are going to forget. They're not, it's not at the forefront of their mind because they don't want it to be. But they're going to look at somebody and say, when they're, you know, thinking about who to vote for, and if the other person on the other, you know, that they, if they're choosing, and the other person is a complete lunatic, they may say, well, that, that, that's the guy who kept me in jail, or kept my kids in jail, or whatever, or made me feel bad, or, or was full of self-righteousness about this. And you know what, it was all crap. And I don't think it was all crap. But 2021 was mostly crap. 2020 wasn't crap. 2021 was crap. crap. What? Some of 2020. Some was of crap. 20, but it's but because you're, as you said, you, it's hard to sort through what was crap and what wasn't crap. But go ahead. I'm sorry. But well, well it, it is. But then there was there was just one moment that was so underappreciated. Back to Cuomo. Sorry, but it's a stand-in for for other municipalities and 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 other other leaders on this. Um, when we were well into 2020. And the surge in New York was 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 dropping, but we 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 were still you know we still had a significant amount of cases, and uh, there was a sense among people like us that okay New York is locked down a little too little too long, and someone asked Andrew Cuomo at one of his daily briefings if he, if the state had any sense of who was getting still getting getting COVID this in this uh, sort of later stage of the game. And he said he didn't know, but he'd look into it. And then he came back a few days later and said, so uh, I followed up on that. And it turns out there's something interesting happening. 
Uh, new cases are most prevalent in people who are staying home. <laughs> the pe people who are going to work uh, aren't don't don't seem to be getting new cases. You know, people who had like sort of essential uh, uh, jobs, which was that's more than something interesting. Um, yeah, you remember people were getting arrested on beaches in Florida, right? You know, or 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 getting shamed. I mean, that was the shame spiral thing, right? That weird thing where that guy was walking up to people in the Darth Vader outfit. On, on, no, like on, death. You know, he was dressed as death. Oh, dressed death. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so Darth Vader, Vader would have been dressed fine. As death. Hey, right. <laughs> but in Sarasota, or I can't remember where he was, or he might have been on the Atlantic coast. Anyway, he was like, you know, are, are you, do you want to kill people? Uh, it was astonishing. And, and um, yeah, but I disagree with you, by the way, that we're not going to know what, what helped and what didn't help. I mean, massive amounts of data were being collected in a way that had never been collected before. And uh, the CDC has already recategorized 70,000 deaths out of the 900,000 in the United States as not having come from COVID, which, what is that, 8%? So they've already they've they've already gone through and said there was a logical da data entry error, a data logic error, or something like that. Now eight percent isn't fifty percent, but uh, we are still very unclear about the died from COVID, died with COVID distinction, and I that may clarify itself. And because of the phenomenon, the kind of things that. Um, Jim Meggs has written about in commentary, particularly in relating to uh, the surfacing of information about what went on at the Wuhan labs. There are now a lot of amateur epidemiologists who are probably just as good, if not better, at epidemiology than all these people who got degrees in epidemiology, which I remind you is not a medical field that requires you to go through medical school. It's a, it's a statistical, it's a statistician's job. It's like... Um, and uh, there are people who are going to plow through this data and plow through everything that we know as it's released in weird ways by public health officials, which is exactly what happened here in Britain to reveal that six children died of COVID in an entire year in which they were forced to live under these conditions. And everybody knows kids who were harmed by it. And if if you're a parent, you, you know kids who were harmed by it. And... Um, and a reckoning. There's just going to be a reckoning. It's that simple. But I, I, I mean, politically, I, I agree. But I think, you know, there's there's always going to be these parties that come out with these studies based on modeling. Right. To, to defend the, the, the COVID regime in its entirety. It says new models suggest that uh, lockdowns saved more lives than we even knew. And it's but it's all but it's not it's yeah. it's it's like a lot of the climate stuff frankly you know you you can you could just construct these models to say whatever you want and and those are all yeah. those are going to be embraced over and over again by well, by mainstream so the new york times did this story i guess you referenced about you know sort of what we learned in new york after two years of COVID. And it was a list of like 11 lessons and one of them was that masking masking worked to mitigate the spread um, and I don't have it in front of me, but so it's like four paragraphs in this article in which there is absolutely no evidence adduced that masking worked to limit the spread. I mean, actual 
statistical longitudinal thing that, you know, in this play, you know, and basically we're working off a single study from what I can tell big study. Uh, was it Bangladesh? I think, I think it was Bangladesh that said they were able to isolate giant populations that masked and didn't mask and that the COVID spread uh, was higher among the, among the um, unmasked than the masked. And it was, you know, 60,000 people here and 60,000 people there under much of the same conditions and da, 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 da. But that's one study. And you know, we know about studies, you know, but you know about the uh, replicability of studies, something like 60 to 75% of studies are bullshit, right? I mean, that they, they are, they're unreplicable. And what I'm saying is you're right that we're going to have these, the problem with the, coming up with the study that shows that X, Y, or Z worked is that um, there's too much, there's too much data to reveal when people are lie about the data. Now there's just too much information about COVID for people to be able to so easily manipulate it in that way with the models. But I will say there are, we have the other problem throughout the pandemic. And I, and this is the question is whether this is going to continue to be a problem going forward. It, it, it actually goes into something that, that Noah brought up throughout the pandemic on this podcast, which is that in previous pandemics, people just kind of wanted it all to go away. It's like, let's not talk about this anymore. It was so horrible. Let's just move on. But I think in this, in this post COVID era, we might actually talk about it a little more, which is good, but there are people who looked at a lot of these studies, particularly with masking Ian Miller, a guy who kind of started out saying, you know, yeah, let's do all these mitigation measures. He ended up writing a book about global, looking at global data for masking. He looked at the best studies, including one out of Denmark that really was the considered the gold standard, which found no perceivable benefit to masking. It was just like, it just doesn't really do much. It's not that, you know, people shouldn't slap one on to feel better and, and safer themselves, but he, and he didn't ha- really have an ax to grind until he kept hearing statements by public health officials that insisted this was going to protect people. And as we know, once Omicron came through, it did, it just couldn't, right. it wasn't possible. So I think that that, those sorts of picking over the data at that scale are important. But when that study came out, it didn't get a blip of attention. Like nobody wanted to hear that. So there's also this media environment and and political power environment where certain things are heard loud and clear and other things are actively ignored. Well, this was the, the, something stunning happened about a week ago. Anthony Fauci, who had, you know, gone missing as we, as we noted for the long, (laughs) for a long period, um, reemerged at some point. He was on, uh, he was on George Stephanopoulos' show. Thank you. Thank you. And and one of the things he said was that he doesn't want to say, of course, that we should that we should, you know, be rid of uh, our, our mitigation measures entirely uh, f- for the foreseeable future, because, of course, again, a new uh, variant could come up and we may have to re-implement our mit- mitigation measures, as he said, to prevent a surge. That was shocking to me. When has whether or not you could say this stuff has these the masks and lockdowns has reduced cases? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. To what extent? I don't know. When has any of it ever prevented a surge? That has never happened. The surges come and go, regardless of of, of masks and and lockdowns. So and there's think a, there's one on the way. Right. right? Europe is uh, is bracing. China is under for real 2020 style lockdown because of a 
a sub variant of the Omicron variant. This, you know, it's 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 something less than Omicron classic. And there's no evidence that it's more severe unless you have a crappy Chinese vaccine or a crappy but, Russian vaccine. Right. But there's also the fact that, you know, there there are these numbers being thrown around that are really startling that like a third to a half of the population of the United States got Omicron. Since not everybody was testing, we don't really know. And because the symptoms were so mild, we don't really know. But I mean, we may not. So if that's the case and you have the sub-Omicron, it doesn't stand to reason you're going to get it again. Well, the Times numbers say 80 million, just shy of 80 million people have reported positive test over the course of two years yeah so right but that number i think was somewhere around 40 million before before december so that number doubled so we have 80 million people with a positive test we have a vaccination rate now of fully vaccinated people who can get the vaccine of 66 percent or something like that i don't want to like happy talk this but you know in case rates are going up in the united states Right. We had 12,000 reported cases on March 19. And yesterday we had almost 40,000 positive But the cases. case the case rate doesn't matter. Oh, I know that. No, but they I don't. know that. Right. Well, I don't know who they are, but I, I think that the, the central point here is that the notion that you do these mitigation measures that you that you um you see you know you see a cloud it's sort of like again not to go to andrew cuomo about everything but it's like uh, there's a storm coming so andrew cuomo shuts down new york state and then there's half an inch of rain or half an inch of snow um that's the hot new thing in american governance right is anticipating snowstorms and you know the federal government shutting down and transit systems shutting down and everybody told to stay home and all of this. That's not how you do the, that is, this is, this is not how life works because Abe's talking about models. Meteorology is all models and you actually don't know what's going to happen. You know, you get a snowstorm that dumps, you know, a foot and a half of snow and the predictions were for two inches or vice versa. And so you can't do it this way because the disruption is too severe. And uh, and they, they've all fallen in love with this idea uh, because, of course, it lets the powerful get their jollies on. You know, um, I, I've shut down the subway system. Andrew Cuomo shut down the subway system three times while he was governor. No one had ever done it before. Guess what? You do it once and it gives you such a thrill up your leg. You just can't wait to do it again. Can't wait to shut the subway system down. I've shut the subway system down. Six million people a day ride the New York City, the 840 miles of track of the New York City subway system, and I shut it down because I am the governor and I get to shut it down. And this is the thing we, of course, need to protect against very seriously. And that is what Sean Patrick Maloney was saying. He's saying, don't associate us with masking. Please. I'm against it. I don't want masking. And now you have all these people begging the administration to lift masking requirements on yes, airlines airline and on mass CEOs. Transit. Yes, and, and airline CEOs, I think nine of them, like most of the major airlines, 
begging Biden to lift the mask mandate on airplanes. This is already done international. Many international flights have already listed and foreign countries have, lift, have lifted their mandates. And again, the, but this is the problem. I think there are a lot of Americans who don't understand that they associate Democrats, even if Democrats say, oh, no more mandates, we're not the party of mandates. They are still forever and rightfully uh, uh, smeared with this idea that they did all these lockdowns. They abused their emergency powers. They were in bed with the teachers unions because they were. I mean, there's just and and a yeah. very small number of people were screaming, shouting into the wind, including us all about it for years. People are now realizing when they pay attention um, that this is this is who they were. And they're also still right. getting the shaming. And the, I mean, I see it here in D.C. with masking still. There's a lot of parents still angry and fearful and who still want their kids in, you know, N95 masks every day. I mean, there's those people are still and out they there. Can. Too. They right. can. That's they what can I say. They have, the they have the point. choice now. Yes. The whole point is they can they can make their kids live in masks. But that came because we threatened lawsuits. That came because parents organized and basically went to the mayor and said, you're going to be in political trouble if you don't stop doing this. But that number, I want to just go back to the number and then I'm going to to do our ads. But um, that poll said that 46% of people think masking harmed their children and 11% thought it helped. Those are, if you're on the wrong side of that number, you're on the wrong side of that number and you are at any risk. Uh, we keep talking about what people are going to run on in their districts, you know, where where there are competitive races in the House. And of course, Trump wants them all to run on 2020 and, you know, how there should be, be a new election created out of whole cloth to inst- get Biden out and re- install him again or whatever. But uh, if you look at these numbers and they keep getting they 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 go they keep going this way republicans are going to run commercials about how this about how you know uh you know congressman schlobotnik uh, the democrat kept you all in masks and lockdown and that because that's what democrats do when they can control you they control you and i won't do that i'm you know i'm i'm filled you know i'm phil schmedlap and you know i prove this message i mean it's 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 a it's a easy call and and it, and it also spreads the issue out from it gives you multiple issues to run on because you can run on inflation and you can run on covid reminding people that these are the people who sided with teachers who said that you know decided with the unions who said that they wanted children to remain in masks and sided with the you know health public health officials who lied to you about everything. I don't know. I'm not a political consultant, but if I were, you know, I would, I would see the, I, I, I would be thrilled at the possibility of the issue set that I can run on positively for my own candidate expanding this way. Uh, because I think ultimately Noah's idea and the results of the, uh, the, the Spanish flu pandemic would say, don't run ads about it. People want to move on. And if you run ads about it, you're going to remind them of it. They're going to be mad at you for reminding them of it. And I just don't think that's right now. I think they're going to be in a mood. I think a lot of people are going to be in the mood for payback. And they're going oh, to blame. I am. No, that's not, that's not really the, oh. the understanding of, of how the, it's not just the Spanish flu either. I mean, there's half a dozen, yeah. <laughs> or I think two or three um, events in the 1950s and 1960s that were all but forgotten until this pandemic. <laughs> swine flu for some reason everybody remembers but the other ones you know hong kong flu they all just disappeared from memory because 
of the sacrifices you had to make in that period that you didn't want to re-experience them. So popular culture references, books, movies, television, yeah. have it, cultural products. Right. Uh, that's what, what hits the skids. Um, you know, policy lessons do, you know, you, we, it's referenced in academic text, but it's a subject of dispassionate study. It's not something you want to dwell on. Well, you know, the, the public health response to the pandemic was, was one of the first great, um, mo- uh, uh, what would you call it, um, uh, mobilizations of uh, progressive ideology in the United States. It was this idea that we were giving ourselves over to the experts and the experts were going to tell us what to do because otherwise, you know, 50 million people were going to die. And, um, and I think the general proposition was that people thought that the public health experts had done fine or done well. And, you know, progressivism was, you know, was there was the rule by expert was so significant that, you know, Herbert Hoover, who was a Republican, was elected in 1928 on the grounds that he was really a fantastic and he was an engineer and, a you know, and he was somebody who really knew how to run things from a from a. Yeah, he wasn't a progressive, but it was sort of that general mindset. And I think here we have think about it. I mean, even even from the, the our perspective, like the covid movie wouldn't be about a covid movie. For like a Spanish flu movie wouldn't be about Spanish. It'd be about World War One. A, a covid movie wouldn't be about covid. It would be about the 2020 riots in the streets. It would be about the Trump administration. It would be about January 6th. It might be about Ukraine for all we know. It wouldn't be about covid because COVID is just the background noise of the events surrounding it. Well, you know, the, the game to play with this as a, as a, as a thought experiment would be um, if, uh, you know, everybody loves this true crime study, every, every second new streaming series is some true crime story or some either hagiographic hey portrait of a crusading liberal, you know, or an attack on a crusading conservative, you know, Phyllis Schlafly or, uh, the early feminists or all of that. And, you know, the question's going to be if it's 2024 and somebody for some stupid reason decides they want to make a 10 part, you know, series for Hulu on, on, on the pandemic um, is Fauci going to be a hero or is the, or is the draw is the drama? Are they going to continue with the hagiography hey of public health and all of that? Or will we have moved sufficiently? So the drama is going to be, which would be a drama. Here are all these people. They wanted to do good. They were very concerned about American health and all of this. And then they just kept going and they went too far and they got drunk on their own power and all of that. Cause that's actually a good story. The Fauci story is a bad story. It's a boring story. The story of heroic public health officials is a boring story because they were unchanging in the face of data. You know, there's no change. There's, there's no, no alteration. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so she has we, no character arc. That's uh, yeah, I like exactly. that. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, we've probably discussed this enough. So I'm now going to talk to you about fast growing trees because summer is upon us. Spring is upon us. You want to entertain outdoors, have a pool party, have a barbecue. But if your yard looks like a plant cemetery, you're not going to enjoy it as much. Get your place looking like a resort. Easy with fast-growing trees. When it comes to caring for your plants, know-how matters. That's why FastGrowingTrees.com's experts curate thousands of plant varieties that will thrive in your specific climate, location, and needs. No waiting in lines, no messy cars from hauling plants all over town. 
because you order online or over the phone and your plans are shipped to your door in one to two days. Plus, their growing in care advice is available 24-7. Whether you're looking for increased privacy, shade, or adding some natural beauty to your yard, fast-growing trees have the perfect plants and the expertise to help you find them. Even if you've never had a green thumb, they'll make you feel like you do. One million home gardeners have already seen what FastGrowingTrees.com can do for them. Plus, with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. So go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary right now, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary. FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary. And look. How are you going to find your favorite new piece of outdoor gear? If you sign up for a BattleBox, it finds you. BattleBox, your go-to monthly subscription for hand-picked outdoor survival and everyday carry gear. Getting the best gear for yourself not only takes time, but can be incredibly expensive. That's why BattleBox brings you name-brand high-quality products every month at half the price of what they cost on their own. You just pick the box that works for you and get tested and vetted products you can trust. They're selected by an expert team of outdoor professionals delivered right to your doorstep. Each month, from an aquapod emergency water kit to an atomic bear survival bivy, BattleBox has shipped over 1 million boxes since 2015 and been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Survivor's Edge. And now, until March 31st, get a free mystery box worth 115 bucks or more with any new subscription at trybattlebox.com slash commentary. Important, T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X. T-R-Y-B-A-T-T-L-B-O-X dot com slash commentary for that free mystery box worth $115 right now at trybattlebox.com slash commentary, trybattlebox.com slash commentary. Um, Biden uh, gave a press conference yesterday. I guess he's going to give another one today in Poland. He gave another one, he gave one yesterday after the big meeting. Um, and uh, it seemed to me he acquitted himself fine. There seems to be a lot of concern that he bungled the what what is our response going to be to chemical weapons question by saying uh, we would respond in kind because of course what does that mean does that mean that if they fire chemical weapons it's a, we're going to fire chemical weapons at him at Putin uh, which would be a weird response to a chemical weapons attack but uh, he obviously didn't want to answer the question he didn't want to give you know he 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 wasn't going to make a public threat uh, of that sort. Um, uh, and maintain, you know, battlefield ambiguity or whatever you want to call it. But was anybody concerned that he gave the answer that he gave and that it would be seen as weak by Putin or anything? No, I don't think so. I mean, the, the thinking in the White House is that, as you said, they should maintain ambiguity <clears throat> about what the response would be to the use of an unconventional weapon. And uh, I understand that rationale and it, it makes sense. And I, I'm I'm cautious about second guessing um, our our response in that regard. My thought was that we would probably retail the idea that there would be a disproportionate response to something like that uh, in order to preserve deterrence. And maybe that's the wrong strategy because in the event that you draw a red line, it just tempts people to test your red line. And then maybe you don't follow up on your red line because of course we're talking about the edge of Armageddon. So it's, um, I, I understand what they're trying to do here. And, and I, I'm, second guessing myself in in my assumptions uh so but i don't necessarily think that that was a, a bad response or a poor response i don't know if they have or if there is a response if there's right. if there can be a calculated measured response to that or if you would you know maybe it's smart to leave open the prospect that 
the idea that you would use, for example, a, a nuclear weapon, a tactical or otherwise, or even an unconventional weapon that you can't control, like a chemical weapon or a biological weapon, um, the range of responses should be pretty ambiguous, perhaps. Maybe the United States would launch a counterforce strike on every silo in Russia so that you can't actually incapacitate our nuclear arsenal. All you have is a second strike capacity, and then you're you're leaving open vulnerable your uh, population centers. Or maybe it's uh, you know something much more theater related. I, I don't know, uh, but right. ambiguity isn't necessarily a terrible idea there. And my so assumption that they wouldn't preserve ambiguity there was, was wrong, and maybe I'm wrong. Except for one thing, and that's that of all the people who shouldn't be ambiguous about what happens when that red line is either drawn and then stepped over or when chemical weapons are used, it's, it's someone who was in previously in the Obama administration, because that's exactly what happened with Syria. And I'm quite sure that that Putin learned that lesson very well, which is maybe he didn't draw the red line. Uh, but the ambiguity concerns me because Biden was part of that administration that drew the red line, Syria stepped over it and nothing happened. I mean, basically, they were not they were allowed well, to use something, chemical weapons. Something happened. They crossed the red line and then Russia stepped in and said, right. I'll, I'll pull your I'll pull your bacon from the fire. So and 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 offer you some face saving alternative to actually getting military, you know, pro, uh, punishing Syria militarily right. for its for its action. Abe, let me ask you this. So Biden ended the press conference in a slightly odd way, I thought, because um, he he used a he used a formulation again. He was. You know, you can't parse these words like they were carefully considered and studied and issued like a like a like a diplomatic communique. But he said the single most important thing is that we stay united, meaning NATO. The single most important thing is that we stay united. Now, it struck me that he could have said the single most important thing is that Ukraine win this war. But he didn't say that. And. Maybe it's not fair to expect him to say it. He was also asked at some point, you know, whether he would push Zelensky to accept, you know, the annexation of Crimea and the creation of these runaway states and, you know, in the separatist regions. And he said, that's not for me to say. This is all that 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 is that is Zelensky's business and Zelensky's business alone to negotiate. But there wasn't a lot of talk about how what what we're here for is to have Ukraine win, whatever that means. Um, I'm actually sort of OK with that, because okay. if you say that's the single most important thing, if you, if you state it and then Ukraine doesn't win, then we failed or they failed or we're, we're all a part of that. We're all. Complicit in the failure of the single most important thing. Um, if we stay united and Ukraine fails, well, then we've we've still achieved the single most important thing, theoretically, right? Um, I, it's it's it is the single most important thing in terms of it happening. I don't know that we have to say that. Uh, I don't know that that helps. The the I thought Biden did fine generally. There was this one moment uh, where he was questioned about the efficacy of sanctions. Uh, as a deterrence. Um, uh, and, so, and someone said, well, the sanctions were meant failed. to deter. Failed, right. They were, they were yeah. meant to deter. They didn't deter. Putin yeah. and, they deter and Biden said, no, no, no. Sanctions weren't meant to deter. Sanctions don't deter. 
Um, that's that's a lie uh, from his particular viewpoint. I mean, the whole idea was we, we are going to we're, we are sanctioning to try to, to try to stop this. Um, and, and we are leaving. We're not we're not throwing all our uh, we're not throwing all sanctions at him yet because we want to preserve leverage uh, in the in, in the event that these sanctions don't stop him. So the well, idea and, was very much to deter Putin. And he got very testy. Did you notice? Oh, like that's oh, yeah. when, boom, yeah. on a dime. He got really annoyed. A CBS News reporter, good for her for asking the question. But they, I guess the other question I have then is, and it speaks to the question you're asking, John, have we heard him articulate kind of an end game? What's the end game here from his perspective? And that's, I think, what you're getting at. Is it, do you want Ukraine to win? Do you want Russia to fall back? I mean, he needs to start talking about what NATO sees and the U.S. in particular as the end game here, he doesn't want to talk about that because I think that also requires him to articulate this this theory of deterrence that is he's his own party is quite uncomfortable with because it sounds oh I don't know vaguely neoconservative. So from August second, nineteen ninety until January fifteenth, I think nineteen ninety one, when Saddam Hussein went and took Kuwait, George. H.W. Bush and Thatcher and others said, Saddam Hussein, withdraw from Kuwait. Get out of Kuwait. The world is aligned against you. You must exit Kuwait. You must reverse your invasion of Kuwait. Get out of Kuwait. Get out of Kuwait. And then when he had 17 chances to get out of Kuwait and he didn't get out of Kuwait, then we went to war. So that from the minute that this illegal invasion and you know seizure of another country took place, the cl- the clarity of the of the goal of the West, not just the West, was was pretty clear, very simple. You went in; it's not yours. Get out, or we'll make you get out. Now that was a war that we fought directly. This is not a war that we're going to fight directly. I do think that we're going to be in a place where we're going to have to say this. So what, but what does that mean? Does that mean withdraw from the territories that you're currently invading? Does that mean withdraw from Donbass? Does that mean withdraw from Crimea? Are we articulating goals that Kiev does not share? Because Kiev's goal is to get everybody out of everywhere, all Russians out of all Ukrainian territory, including the annexed territory of Crimea. If we are to articulate a goal that we can't meet and that Kiev doesn't share, then we so uh, fissures within the alliance right well okay I, I, that's why i brought up the question i still think that our line is if we're supporting the brave people of ukraine in their incredibly stalwart fight against this invading force where it is having far more success in a pretty thrilling way despite all of the horrifying and tragic destruction uh, we're not just going to be able to stand there and say forever that, you know, our, our, you know, we're, we're just so excited because we're all united in making sure that this doesn't, you know, cross into uh, Poland or Romania or, or, you know, or other, other neighboring states. The world and American public opinion and all of that wants Ukraine to win a war that it is, that it is, you know, at least on a day-to-day basis, fighting not only to a draw, but, you know, really imposing very harsh punishment on the Russians for having made this move in the first place. And trying to walk that fine line is not going to be satisfying. 
and maybe that that's what he feels Biden feels it is necessary to do. But just as I continue to think that um, as this goes on, the idea that the public is going to be satisfied with us walking a line where we don't where we, where we don't do make take active measures to prevent the destruction of Ukraine. Um, a lot of people are going to start complaining that we're not doing more. And so the, and, and rhetorically, we're not doing more either. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have an answer to this. And I'm not setting this up because I, I want to, you know, have you explicate your positions and then say, no, 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 you're wrong. Because once again, I have no idea what the right or wrong here is. But uh, but I know that uh, the American people at the West aren't aren't you know dancing a jig in the streets because NATO is united as as it has never before been. That is a that is a matter of interest to a very small number of people. How the unity of NATO is such a wondrous achievement. Like you know that's that's good for foreign policy conferences and it's good for you know all NATO is of, not united. It's just not. Ah. There you go. Oh, because it's not united out, for example, on Russian sanctions. Precisely. Turkey's wobbly. Germany's yeah. a little wobbly in some places, although they're doing extraordinary things over there. The, the idea now, according to Berlin, is to divest entirely from Russian energy by the end of this year. I don't even know how they're going to do it, but they've at least made that articulation. They've articulated that goal. Hungary is a big sticking point. Felice and Orban uh, are not allowing weapons transfers. They're not allowing overflights with weapons transfers. Um, they're, they're, you know, they some rhetorical gestures towards the uh, the goal of the, dip, the uh, democratic world here to get Russia out of Ukraine, and they, you know, kind of tisking it. But Felice is the party in power in Hungary, and their polls are still pretty good. They got an election next week, and Orban's party is favored to win. Um, similarly with law and order in Poland, which is a, a Orban style party in Poland, although the Polish, uh, Polish government seems pretty, uh, capable and, and, and committed to this cause and the Polish people too. But, you know, there's some, there's some holdouts still Hungary in particular, Hungary is a problem. Okay. Well, I'm not the one who said that NATO is united as never before. Biden was the one who said it. And he said that was the greatest accomplishment of his presidency. And you're now saying, eh, so, you know, uh, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty, st so that, 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 that thing that you're pointing out here again, like speaks to the fact that, um, uh, this is a, you know, this is uh tastes great and less filling. Like it sounds good, but the more you dig into it, the less substantive it might, might be particularly when it comes to the hard choices we're going to have to make, uh, about how far we're willing to go to make sure that Ukraine isn't crushed under the Russian jackboot. Um, how, how far we're willing to go to participate in helping the Ukrainians save themselves from this. And, and that's still a very, very much an open question. What's not an open question is that we're done here for the week and uh, you should have a wonderful weekend. Um, and we will be back on Monday for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>